Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, we're going to start... We're going to start in verse 1. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had the faith faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say this mulberry tree be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let me pray. Father, we ask, as we look at your word this morning together, as we consider what Jesus is teaching his disciples here and and us by the superintendence of your Holy Spirit through your disciple Luke, what Jesus is teaching us about what it means to be unworthy servants who've only done our duty, who have no right to ask for a reward, who don't deserve anything. Father, we pray that as we consider your word, your spirit would help us to understand your word, that help us to trust your word, help us to be changed by your word. We pray that you would confront our own sense of entitlement, our own lack of thankfulness with your word and that we would be those who trust in your son, that you would be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we live in an entitlement culture. It is an entitlement culture. And I can give you multiple examples of it. For example, we have a culture that believes the government owes us and ought to take care of us. I wonder how many young people think about the biblical command that they care for their parents as they're older anymore. See, we can talk about those who are on welfare, but I just want you to think about this as a young person. There's a biblical command that you honor your father and mother. That means, according to Jesus in Matthew 15, that you actually are honoring them by caring for them financially, if need be, in their older age. I wonder how many young people are even planning for that. I wonder how many older people are thinking that that's the responsibility of their children, or if it's rather that most of us just feel like we're entitled for the government to provide that. Someone will take care of it. 
Or, for example, at work, when I do my job well. See, if I do my job well, then, then my boss owes me a bonus or a raise or some kind of praise. I'm owed for just doing what is my basic duty. In relationships, if I'm a good friend or a good spouse or a good parent or a good pastor or a good servant of others, I begin to think that maybe people should be thanking me for that. See, they should be singing our praises, right? But they don't even seem to recognize our kindness to them. Or we reward children for basic obedience. We're in this weird culture where if kids do what is expected of them, we reward them for it. We even treat God this way. We, we seem to believe that God owes us. You know how it shows up? It shows up in two primary ways. It shows up when we suffer, and in, in two ways when we suffer, really. We either are angry with him when we suffer because we believe we deserve better than this. Haven't I served you? Haven't I trusted you? Haven't I prayed to you? Haven't I been a decent person? How could you possibly bring this to my doorstep? I'm angry with you. I deserve better. I'm entitled to better than this. Or we might not be the person who is entitled in quite that way, but we still believe in an entitlement mentality. Here's how it shows up. I'm distraught over what I did wrong to deserve this suffering. So you're not the person who thinks, I deserve better than this. You're the person who thinks, if I had just done better, I would get better than this. Either way, you think the math is, here's the equation, if I do good, I get rewarded. Because good deeds merit or earn me good living. God owes me that. In the first case, I was good and was owed better than this suffering. In the second case, if I had been better, I would not be suffering. Both assume that good behavior deserves reward. It's owed. It's my just dessert. But God, and I want to make this very clear, if there's a theme to the sermon this morning, God doesn't owe us anything. Nothing. Look at Luke chapter 17, verse 7. And I want you to remember the context as we walk through this passage. The context of verse 7, as we've been walking through from verse 1 through 6, Jesus has been laying out to his disciples some responsibilities they have. One is, is that there are three commands he gives them. <clears throat> the first one is, you, you don't, don't cause others to stumble. Watch yourself so that you're not a person who causes someone else to slip into sin who caused someone else to to trip over sin. Watch yourself so you're not that person. The second command he gives them is that if you see a brother in sin, you were to lovingly, gently, kindly rebuke them, seeking after reconciliation for them between them and God. And then the third one is, if they repent, you're to forgive them. You're to be ready to forgive them anytime they repent. Now, I spent three sermons walking through those three commands, so you can go back and listen to them. But... At the end of all that, the disciples say, increase our faith. 
because they realize what a difficult calling this is. And they realize it's impossible. We can't do this, Jesus. Increase our faith. And Jesus is like, you're exactly right, you can't. And if you would trust in the Lord, it's what's impossible for you is possible for him. And then Jesus goes on to this interesting transition where he begins to tell them about the fact that even when you've done well as a disciple, see, here's the command, but even when you've done well as a disciple, you better understand you don't deserve a reward for that. You haven't earned anything from me. Look look at verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing, and that, that word there is doulos, it's a slave, a bond slave. If any of you has a slave plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he's coming to the fi- in from the field, come at once and recline at table. In other words, if you're working all day and your servants are working for you, when you come in from a hard day's work, are you going to come in with your servants from a hard day's work and say to your servants, why don't you come in, sit back at the table, relax, while I get you dinner. As a master, you're not going to do that. In the first century context, these masters are not going to come home from the field, come into the house, bring the servants in, have the servants recline while they make them dinner. It's not going to happen. Jesus expects the answer, no, we wouldn't do that, Jesus, of course not. So what does he go on to say? Will he not, verse 8, will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly. That's to put on the clothing of a servant. In other words, you come in the house from your hard day's work as a servant and you walk into the house and the master says, okay, now make dinner. And you would dress yourself as a servant. So you would get cleaned up. You would put a towel around yourself and you would then prepare dinner and serve them. He says, would you not say, prepare supper for me and dress properly, dress like a slave and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you'll eat and drink. In other words, Jesus is expecting that answer. Of course, that's what you would do, right? If you're a master, you have servants, they're not done with work yet. When you're done with your job, then you can eat. That's the context. That's what he wants them to understand. That's the the day they live in. That's how life worked. Most of you are already riling up going, he deserves better, right? Because we're entitled. Does he thank the servant, verse 9, because he did what was commanded? See, that's startling for us. What do you mean, does he thank? Of course he thanks him. Of course he does. But Jesus expects a no answer here. He expects you to know that what would happen is the servant did his job. The master doesn't thank him because he did what was expected. He doesn't deserve reward. He doesn't deserve thanks. He's just done his duty. And that's what Jesus expects is the answer. Verse 10, so you also. Now here comes the application. I want you to understand this is what servants do. They do what they're commanded. They don't get thanks. They don't get rewards. They just do what they're commanded. And he goes on and says, so you also, you're servants, right, of the master, Jesus. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. See, when you have been a faithful disciple, 
You have only done what was commanded of you. God doesn't owe you thanks. God doesn't owe you a reward. You never obligate God with good works. Did you guys know that? You cannot obligate him with good works. So we live in a culture in which we believe, we believe that if we do our duty, we are owed something for it. And so we think that's true with God as well. If I do my job, he owes me. And what he's saying is, you can never obligate God with your good works, for you can't give anything to him that isn't already his. Look at Romans chapter 11. Just keep your hand there in Luke 17 and look at Romans chapter 11. As Paul makes this point, for 11 chapters, Paul has laid out the gospel, and at the end of it, he goes into this sort of benediction, this doxology, this praise, worship, as he thinks about the kindness of God to us in Christ, this undeserved, unmerited grace we've been shown in Jesus. He says this, verse 33 of Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments! And how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And catch this. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Why can you not give a gift to God for which you deserve repayment? Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You can't give him a gift for which you deserve to be repaid because it's already all his. He owns it all. He created you. He sustains you. He owns everything you have. Even the talents he gave you are his. He gave them to you. You're just stewarding whatever he's given you. And if you steward it successfully, where you're benefited and blessed financially as a result of doing a good job, he gave that to you. It's all from him. So if you do well with what he commanded you to do with his stuff, he doesn't owe you anything. That's startling. And we can say, oh, I know that. Of course I know that. That's obvious. God owns everything. He doesn't owe me anything. But next time you suffer, you're going to find out if you really believe that or not. When things are good, you might say, you know, I'm really thankful. Things are really good. What happens when you suffer? I, I, I've been in suffering before, and I've been on my face crying and asking the Lord, haven't I served you? And as soon as I started to say it, I caught myself realizing my entitlement mentality. I don't deserve anything better than what I'm getting right now. I deserve much worse than what I'm getting right now. So you can't give God anything to obligate him to you. Everything is from him. You can only do what he commands, which earns you nothing. That's the sham of religion. The kind of idea that you can go out and earn God's favor or his works. Or his goodness, sorry, his rewards from your works. That if you just do the right things, it'll all add up in your favor. 
Doing what is commanded is a basic expectation which earns you nothing. And our sense of entitlement is often the reason we lack thankfulness. Here's another clue to the fact that you're entitled. Are you thankful? If you're not very thankful, then you're probably pretty entitled. Look at Luke 17.11 for an example of this. Let's look at the example of the ten lepers. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And I'm going to touch on this passage again next week. But as, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And why do they stand at a distance? Because lepers always stand at a distance. By Levitical law, they were not allowed to come close to everybody else. They were unclean outside the city, suffering with this leprous skin disease, and they weren't allowed near other people so they wouldn't infect them. It goes on, he lifted up, and he, as he entered the village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, notice ten came to him asking for healing. One returns. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Isn't that interesting? He heals ten men. Only one turns and gives thanks. Because in some sense, the other nine felt entitled The failure to be thankful for any good you have is rooted in a sense of entitlement. You aren't thankful because you believe you're owed. You aren't thankful because you believe you deserve even better. But any kindness God shows you is better than you deserve. Often people laugh when they say, how are you? How are you doing? I say, better than I deserve. They laugh and say, it seems morbid. What do you mean by that? Well, I deserve to be in hell. I'm not, so I'm better than I deserve. No matter what state my life is in, I'm doing better than I deserve as long as I am breathing because I deserve to be in hell. I've sinned against God. I'm owed justice. We are sinners by nature and by choice. We deserve wrath and hell. I know that isn't a pretty message, but it's true. The fact that you are breathing right now is God's kindness to you. Be thankful. Listen, you can't earn a reward from the Lord. You can't. You cannot, I want you to be clear this, you cannot earn a reward from the Lord. You never deserve one. Never. I never deserve reward. But what about Psalm 1? What about Psalm 1? I want, I want to keep your hand on Luke 17 and ask this question. Because Psalm 1 sure seems like I can earn one. If you turn there with me to Psalm 1, we'll look at Psalm 1 and 2 just briefly here. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. In other words, this is the man who who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. That's becoming a teacher. You're just progressively getting worse. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. In all that he does, he prospers. I just skipped down for you. Now, I I want you to think about that. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk after wickedness, but who walks after godliness. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. He yields its fruit, it yields its fruits in its seasons. It does, its leaf doesn't wither. In all that that tree does, it prospers. In all that that man does, he prospers. And the wicked are not so. They're like chaff that are blown away by the wind. So here comes the question. If I'm blessed for walking in the way of the Lord, and if all that I do, in all that I do, I prosper, if that's true, if Psalm 1's true, then what are you talking about? Why are you saying we can't earn a reward? Why are you saying we can't merit some kind of prosperity? Because you have to understand the context of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is not about what you deserve. It's about what God graciously gives. If you go to Psalm 2, you find that out. Look at Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves to, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst apart their bonds apart, and cast away their cords from us. In other words, here are what the rulers of the people are saying. Here's what the people of the nations are saying. Let's throw God off. We don't want to have anything to do with him. What does God say about the people who do that? He, that's God, who sits in the heavens, laughs. That isn't a laughter like God. doesn't have God have a great sense of humor. This is a laughter like, you think you can... You can challenge me, I'll have the last laugh. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, I've set Jesus up, and Psalm 2 is all about Jesus. And I have put him there on my hill, and I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, here comes the son anointed by the father to be the messianic king who conquers the nations. The nations who've turned against him. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, which means to submit to him. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is kindled, quickly kindled. And then look at this last note. Blessed, again, you saw it at the beginning of Psalm 1. You see it at the end of Psalm 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, in the son. See, who are the ones that are blessed for taking refuge in the son? Those same ones who have burst their, have said, let's burst their bonds and their cords from us. The same ones who deserve the wrath of the Son are now blessed for taking refuge in the Son. 
They're the same men that are blessed for not walking after the wicked, but walking in the counsel of the godly. These are not men who deserve a reward. They're men who are blessed in the Son, and therefore, as they walk with him, are oftentimes rewarded, temporally and eternally, spiritually and physically. Those rewards can come in Christ, not because you deserve them. He may bless you and reward you physically on this side of heaven as you walk with him. That might happen. Some of your cases, it already has happened. He will definitely bless you spiritually now and in heaven as you walk with him. But even this blessing is in the context of a gracious and merciful covenant which God brought you into, though you didn't deserve it. In the context of this gracious covenant, you're not guaranteed some kind of, you're not guaranteed, hear that word, some kind of temporal physical blessing in exchange for godliness. There isn't a math equation here in the text that says, add faith, take faith and obedience, put an addition sign there, right? And, and then what you'll get with those two things together equals prosperity, physical temporal prosperity. That math equation doesn't exist here. That is the lie of the health, wealth, prosperity teachers, though. That is the math equation they push on people. In their math, they tell you that if you have enough faith, you can prosper. If you have enough obedience, you can prosper. And if you really want to show you have enough faith, you do that by giving more money. That's the real show of faith. That's the seedy seed, they'll call it. You've got to sow your seed, the real seedy seed, the kind of thing you can't afford. Shows your faith, and then you'll get some kind of prosperity from it. It's a math equation that, it, that enriches the lecherous wolves on the backs of sick, poor, aged, and widows. It's a Ponzi scheme of the sickest and vilest order. If the only person that gets enriched from that or is prosperous are the wolves that teach it. The math in that equation assumes you can earn something from the Lord. It assumes you can obligate him and he owes you, but you can't. Often the faithful suffer and the wicked prosper. Asaph gets that, who's a psalmist. He understands, and he actually expresses frustration with the reality that the godly don't always prosper, but often, the suf- but often suffer while the wicked prosper. Look at what he says in Psalm 73. Go there briefly. You didn't know you were going to get a tour of the psalms this morning, but just a few. Psalm 73 Listen to Asaph as he reflects on his frustration that the godly are suffering himself while the wicked are prospering. He starts off by recognizing who God is. It says a psalm of Asaph, truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But, now listen, here's the contrast. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them 
and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Now listen to his frustration. All in vain. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. In other words, what he's saying is, I am frustrated because, and I almost slipped and turned from God because the wicked are prospering and I'm suffering. What's the point of continuing to be godly, to trust the Lord, to be obedient when I continue to suffer? Why even do it? And he said, I got to the point where I almost slipped and I almost turned from him because I started to think godliness was vanity. It was a waste. And then I went to the sanctuary of the Lord and I discerned their end. I found out that the end isn't good for them. He goes on to say that, verse 18, Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. Whom, am I ha- whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell tell of all your works. Now, what does Psalm 2 end with? Blessed are those whose refuge is in the Lord. And where has Asaph made his refuge, found his refuge? In the Lord. But he's a man who suffers, but he trusts in his eternal inheritance in the Lord, and he trusts in the punishment that is coming to the wicked, though they prosper now. So if this is true, why does Jesus say, if it's true that being godly and faithful to the Lord doesn't merit me rewards, doesn't earn me a reward. If that's true, then why does Jesus say it's possible to have the Lord say to us, well done, good and faithful servant? Right, as he's teaching the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, as he's teaching that discourse, he has this point in which he tells a parable, which a man is faithful to the Lord, he gives them these talents, the man is faithful with the talents the Lord gives him, and he invests them well, and earns the Lord a return. And when the Lord returns, he comes back and says, oh, you've earned more money with what you invested and what I gave you. And he says to him, well done, good and faithful servant. And we understand that Jesus is talking about eternity there. And we look forward to the day in which Jesus says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, if it's true we can't earn that, that we never deserve that, then how can it ever be said to us? And why does Jesus ever talk about rewards? The scripture talks about eternal rewards. Eternal rewards that we get that in some way are in accordance with our deeds. How could that be? Because of Jesus. 
I want you to hear something. When it says that your rewards are in accordance with your deeds, it doesn't say that they're based upon your deeds. Your deeds aren't the foundation of the rewards you get. Jesus is. He's the basis. Your rewards come in accordance with your deeds. In other words, as you're in Christ and you serve him, in him, you get rewards from him because of his grace, not because you deserve them. God gave us every good and perfect gift, we, yet we turn and worship the gift rather than the giver. And as a result, we deserve only his justice, but he sent his son, because I want you to catch this, he sent his son not only to forgive us our sins and give us righteousness, actually declare us righteous and make us his sons, but he, catch this, he rewards us. Sinners. People have turned from him. People are wicked. His enemies. We bring nothing to the table that merits us anything and yet he rewards us in his son. We deserve only his justice, yet he rewards us. And I want you to note this. We are unworthy servants. We don't deserve to be served and rewarded by God. Yet Jesus humbles himself as Lord to serve us. Now I want you to keep the parable that Jesus is telling about unworthy servants in mind. The unworthy servant does what? He dresses himself for service, or he, does, he dresses himself for service, he comes in and he serves his master. The master never serves the servant in Jesus' parable, right? Never. The servant deserves nothing from the master. He doesn't deserve, least of all, he deserves to be served by the master. Keep that parable in mind and turn to John 13. John 13. Because I want you to see these last two passages in John 13 and Luke 12, and then we'll, I'll be done. John chapter 13 Jesus in the last week of his life. Jesus, our Messiah, our Lord, our Master, the one to whom we ought to say, Master, come, recline at table, and then we ought to get dressed and ready to serve him. He comes, verse 1 of chapter 13, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that's the, to depart, that means out of this world of the Father, when he knew his crucifixion was here, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I could preach a whole sermon on that verse. Astounding, but I'm not going to. Verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put into the, it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the God, Excuse me, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And listen to this. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel tied around his waist. What's he doing? He's dressing himself as a servant. That is what he did when he came here. When God took on humanity, when the son became a man. He dressed himself as a servant. That's what Paul tells us in Philippians 2. That is what Jesus is doing in his ministry here. He's dressing himself as a servant. The master is. Then he, verse 5, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet like the servant would before dinner. 
and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You notice the humiliation here. He has no outer garments. He has a towel. He washes their feet like a servant would and removes the towel to dry their feet. It's utter humiliation of a servant before a master. Yet this is the master doing it. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, rightly astonished, Lord, do you wash my feet? See, I heard your parable. The master doesn't wash the feet of the servant. Just the opposite. The servants wash wash the feet of the master. Do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter, I'm giving you a picture of the cross where I will wash you clean. You don't get it now, but when the cross comes, you'll get it. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. See, if I do not cleanse you through the cross, if I do not serve you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head, which you understand why he'd say that. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, speaking of Judas. In other words, I, I, listen, I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to cleanse you, and you, you won't need a bath after I cleanse you. I'm going to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness, and you'll be clean in me, but not one of you. Judas Iscariot, who turns against him. But the master serves the servants. They deserve this? Did they merit it? Were they owed this? Absolutely not. In his life, his incarnation, his life, ministry, and death, he served us. Now here's what is a stunner. He resurrects from the dead, ascends to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns forever and is promised to return in judgment. And what's amazing is when he returns as the King of kings and Lord of lords, who he is, what happens? Look at Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 and verse 35. Keeping in mind what the servant does for the master in the incredible reversal that happens here, Jesus tells them, stay dressed, verse 35, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. In other words, when your master went off for his wedding feast as servants, you would be at home ready for him. You'd keep the lamps on. You'd be ready to open the door. You'd keep yourself dressed for service. You were waiting for the master to come home. You did not want to be found asleep when he came home. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to return, and you better be ready for me like a servant is ready for his master coming home. Prepare yourself. Don't go to sleep. Stay awake. And then what's stunning is what comes next. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he, the master, Jesus, at his return, as the king of kings, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. 
You don't deserve that. We're not entitled to that. That's grace. That's all that is. That's what we call the marriage supper of the Lamb. He comes and serves his bride, his wayward, unfaithful bride. He comes and serves. He, as the master, comes and serves the servants, even at his return. That's a stunner. To think of the Lord of glory, the creator of all things, in whom all things hold together, and for whom all things were made, to return in the heavens and hear the trumpets blast through the heavens as we see the Lord with the heavenly host coming, and to see him coming, you think as servants, we will be on our faces in front of him, and he will say to us, let me dress for service, and let me serve you. And he will look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your master. Stunner. All his work. What do we add to any of that? We are unworthy servants whom the master graciously serves. So if we don't deserve a reward but receive one only by grace through faith, does that mean we should never be motivated by reward? No, we should be motivated by eternal rewards. We can even be motivated by the possibility of having wisdom pay off right now. However, we should never expect that we deserve some payoff or reward. We should know that as we are motivated by rewards, that they're always a gift of grace. Our best works are only acceptable in Christ. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus, they merit us nothing. They are filthy rags. But in him, he graciously rewards those works. See, I want to enter into the joy of my master and receive rewards from him. And I want to live a life that honors and is blessed by him. However, I don't deserve any reward or blessing. And these aren't contradictory ideas. Jesus is so gracious, so gracious, that he not only removes penalties, he offers rewards. And obedience does not increase my chances of earning these rewards. They're still gifts of grace. May we look to our master, to Christ, who serves us and rewards unworthy servants like us, and may we be thankful. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would be people who are thankful for your son, that we would rejoice in the great kindness that he shows to us, that you've shown to us in him, the forgiveness of our sins which we don't deserve, the declaration of us being righteous which we don't deserve, which is all of him, the adoption as your children, though we were enemies, and the rewarding of us and serving of us by the Lord of glory. It's almost a bit too much to take in. Father, it's certainly not what we deserve. It's not something we can earn or merit. It's not something we're entitled to. It's a free gift, gift of grace in your son Jesus because of your great love for us. May we know that and rejoice in you and be thankful. May we be thankful every moment of every day. For those who don't know you, we ask that you would 
work powerfully in their lives so that they would see their need for your son and see the great provision you've made in him. They would trust in him and be saved. Father, for those of us who are your children already, may we be ever more motivated to holiness through thanksgiving for the grace of God in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.